Hey everybody, St. Paul here on vacation in Maui. I know it's hard to believe. Hey, you're in for a treat. Glenn Phillips is next on Music on the Run. Before we get started here, do me a favor. Wherever you got this podcast, make sure you subscribe, give us a rating, and if you have time and like what you're hearing, make sure you write a review. It really helps us get the word out so we can have a lot more people coming to the party. Hey everybody, I'm St. Paul Peterson. Prince gave me that nickname, and I've been lucky enough to tour with people like the Steve Miller Band, Kenny Loggins, Peter Frampton, Donnie Osmond, to name a few. And when I'm not playing music, I love to run. And this is a podcast about how we stay healthy on the road, physically, mentally, and with our families. Welcome to Music on the Run. Hey everybody, St. Paul Peterson here. How are you? Welcome to episode 33 of Music on the Run. And you see that I'm not locked in my basement anymore. I have escaped to the beautiful beaches of Maui on a little holiday with my family. And man, let me tell you, it was uh, exactly what the doctor ordered. I'm having such a good time. My kids home went, went home yesterday. They're all home safe. And I'm hanging out for another week is what I'm doing. So... And I suppose you're wondering, are you running on your holiday? And uh, my answer to that is, I've run a couple of times. This week, I'm going to get out. I found a great route right around the ocean here. And uh, yeah, I'm just trying to chill out. I'm learning how to relax. I don't even know really how to do that. But I'm pretending, uh, fake it till you make it, I guess is what the deal is. But without any further ado, I want to talk about my guest who's on the show today. He's a singer, songwriter, musician, He was signed to Columbia Records when he was 15 years old. How does that happen? We're going to find that out. 18. If my research... Was it 16? 18, but that's okay. Eight. (laughs) Well, good. I'm going to to tell all sorts of lies here, and you're going to have to clarify all these. So if my research is correct, he's released eight records with Toad the Wet Sprocket, nine as a solo artist, and... Mm. Okay, well, we'll we'll get to that. Are you still a (laughs) Star Trek fan? Okay, he's not any of these things, but please welcome <laughs> my terrible research, but my my wonderful guest, Mr. Glenn Phillips. Hey, buddy. You're at Good the beach, be I see. I am. I'm in Santa oh, Barbara, man. Thank you and I was so just much. seeing an old friend, and so, uh, and uh, somehow I, I forgot that this was a Zoom thing, so I was ready to have my phone and jump on, and this is now my, it's not a bad backdrop. Oh, good God, no. Well, exactly. I've got the same backdrop. It is windy as a son of a gun here. So if you see, if you hear a bunch of whips of wind, that's part of the charm of this particular podcast. But hey, Matt, thank you so much for uh, for coming on here. I really appreciate it. So you're in in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. I got to tell you, man, I've been having so much fun doing my research on you and. you're an incredible songwriter, great right. melodies, lyrics, musicianship. It's just, uh, it's been so much fun to learn more about you than what I already knew and dig a little deeper. Um, you had a gig last night, didn't you? Uh, did you do, did you yeah. have a concert last night? I think I did. It was Sunday. <laughs> yes, I did. I did. I have a, uh, um, 
I do a stage at concert pretty much every Sunday night. And then I've been doing three live streams on like YouTube and Facebook a week. Uh, and then I lead a, a kind of community choir on Tuesday nights. So I've been, I've been busy. Uh, <laughs> I've been spending a lot of time singing into a, a computer screen this year. Um, but yeah, show last night. That's great. I think our internet connection is a little goofy, and it's probably on my end because they don't want you on the internet out here. They want you vacationing. All right. So I told some I told some lies evidently in my intro. So let's let's clarify that. So I, I'm giving yeah. good information to uh, the people here. How many records with Toad the Wet Sprocket? It probably your numbers. I mean, depending on how you you count, right? It, it's probably eight if you go in total. Um, I guess it was five, six studio, six complete studio records, live record, B-side. Oh, yeah, eight. Yeah, you can go eight and nine. And I've done a bunch of solo. And then there's also been side projects like WPA, Mutual Admiration Society, Plover, uh, uh, Remote Tree Children, Flapping Fly. So there's, there's been a lot of like different projects. So I'm sure your numbers were ultimately correct. <laughs> just depends on well, depends on what you count as as a record. How you're counting? Okay, so the reason I said you were a Star Trek fan is because I saw somewhere in our article that 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 I think your parents had that they were they were fans of that or something growing oh, up. Is yeah. that is that accurate information as well? Yeah, I was raised by nerds, so my uh, okay. parents were both hard science PhDs. Dad was physics, mom was chemistry, and he remembered like back. You know, in the 60s, the entire physics department would watch the original Star Trek together, like when it first came out. Uh, That's brilliant. And, yeah, and I think we forget kind of how utopian the vision of that was. Um, the, the, you know, even from the pilot of the original Star Trek, right? The Menagerie, you see, I, I know these, uh, but I think it was the Menagerie. Um, in any event, that. Like the original Star Trek, everyone was white and male and there was one white female and the idea of making it multi, you know, as best as they could do in the 60s, having it have, you know, multicultural, multi-race, like the, the, it was this vision of a unified earth where we'd gone past our petty nationalistic differences and achieved some, achieved actual equality and where, it, you know, it's like, it was a pretty big vision back in the day. And, right. Uh, in any event, so we used to watch all the time growing up, Star Trek The Next Generation, when that would come out. I, I'm not like an active Trekkie with all the brand new versions. I've watched a little, but not ah. a lot. Uh, but I, I would say I'm still unabashedly a nerd. Uh, <laughs> you know, but I do more... Perfect. I'm more into the expanse than I am into new Star Trek these days. And I read, you know, more Alistair Reynolds, like hard sci-fi uh, or the three body problem or Ted Chang and things like that. So, um, ah. but I, I, come, I, I was raised by Trekkies and I, I, I still carry a little bit of the torch. Uh, I think that's great. My, my expert Trekkie sitting in the other room, my wife is, is the, absolute expert on that so I, I thought i'd throw that in there just as a little uh uh kudos to her and to the fellow trekkies who might be fans of this 
podcast as well. Okay, so I also got more information wrong. I said you were the lead singer of a group at 14. Is that right? That part's right, right? I was. We didn't get signed by Columbia until I was 18. So we, we started... I guess when I was 17 and 18, we recorded the first two records, uh, Bread and Circus and Pale. And then we got signed by Columbia. They put those two records out. And then I think I was 21 or something when uh, Fear came out, 20 or 21. Right. So we started so early. 18, man, that, that that's incredible. How, what's your background? Do, you, do, you, uh, do your parents play or what was the household like when you were growing up? No. How did I mean, you become my, the player? Yeah. Well, my dad was my dad was a pretty bad guitarist and saxophone player. Uh, <laughs> my mom was, is tone deaf, uh, but my brother played drums and keyboards. He's brilliant. He was like kind of, you know, I don't know if you saw Fame. Like he was kind of Bruno Martinelli, right? <laughs> he was um, programming synthesizers and uh, all right. And he actually went to work straight out of college. He went to Berkeley and started working for Korg, uh, you know, designing synthesizers. And uh, he's wow. been a product manager at Korg uh, for, you know, 30 years now. So he's um, 30 years, close to, almost 28 years or something he's worked there. So God. he was a musician and he's brilliant. So... Uh, I wanted to be like him and play music. And I, I had thought that I would be an academic. I kind of early on wanted more. I was interested in social sciences. I wanted to teach. I thought I'd be a high school teacher, probably mm -hmm. social sciences and the arts. And, uh, and then we got signed without really trying to. <laughs> and I'd planned on moving away to San Francisco the next year. And instead we went on tour and, uh, I always kind of figured we'd get dropped quick and then I'd go back to school, but it just somehow never happened. So, so 18, um, freshly out of high school, I would imagine. Uh, I got out of high school at 16, but, uh, but yeah, fresh enough, fresh enough. Right. So, uh, so was that, was, was for, for you, was that an adjustment? Let me give you a little background of what my deal is. Um, I was signed at 17 with Warners. Oh, wow. With, Prince, I've, I'm come. From, I come from the that Prince camp, and I can tell you from. No, I know you and me. We we're the same. Wow. <laughs> but for me, for me, it was such Bye, a. Bye, sir. Bye, Glenn. Hi, everybody. Hi, every. I had um, of course, it was such a learning curve for me. Thrust into, yeah. you know, I wasn't. The, I wasn't the lead singer like you are so i can only imagine well and you were that you i can't imagine i mean i i got susan rogers told me a few stories but the intensity of working with prince in and of itself uh has got to be <laughs> like just uh, wait a minute did you say did you say evan rogers susan rogers susan rogers okay well both i know both those guys i didn't know that you knew susan I know Susan through uh, Geggy Ta. So she okay. produced Geggy Ta, like, you know, she, I think kind of coming out of doing large things and she wanted to do, I, I am, she is a person whose musical path and life path I'm entirely envious of, right? Went back to school, 
degree in neurology. She's been doing research all this time. Like I, uh, I love that she managed to kind of get out of the train of that and do other things. But, uh, but yeah, no, she produced Gegita and I got to know her through that. She did uh, a couple of recordings on the very last original Toad recordings. We did, uh, what was the record? It was PS, which was kind of this retrospective with two new songs. Oh, wait, was that her? No, it was our version of Instant Karma, I think, was she recorded for us. Mm. Fastest engineer I have ever met in my life. I think she said it was, because of the... Prince connection because Prince would count 1,001, 1,002 if stuff wasn't plugged in. You know, just oh, yeah. beating on their, the engineers. He did that, I think, to a string of engineers. And if they couldn't keep up, they'd be gone the next day or that during that session. So and for those of you who don't learned. know who we're talking about, Susan Rogers is an incredible, incredible engineer who worked on so many records with Prince, and I was lucky enough to work with her as well on the family record. And mm -hmm. she's become a good friend. And and obviously, Glenn was telling you about all the other things that she has done and worked with him as well. So pretty. Uh, that, that's a small world, I can tell you that. Yeah, it was great. She described it as being in the studio with Prince, and if his eyes flickered towards the Hammond, you started miking it because probably. That was going to be the, like you just had to anticipate the next <laughs> instrument. And so this kind of constant situational awareness of where he might go next, any cue you could possibly follow to kind of anticipate and, and prepare. I think that's why she lasted as long as she did. And I think she wasn't even like a tracking engineer, right? When she started with him, she was like there to maintain. She was more of an engineer engineer, like maintenance Right, but I think you she may knew be how right. it worked, and just had had the right type of attention for him to recognize her worth. Um, the, she's brilliant. also the right personality. She yeah. is brilliant. Yeah, she is absolutely brilliant. Okay, well, let's go back a little bit to. Uh -huh. um, so you're signed at 18. Everybody thinks that when you get signed to a major record deal, you've made it. And you and I, <laughs> you and I both know that that's not necessarily yeah. true. So tell me about a little bit about that journey before you had your your uh, your hits in '91. Well, yeah, I mean we we had kind of a punk rock attitude, and once again, yep. I think I also just had the feeling we had a weird combination of feeling like it didn't matter if it didn't work, and also the entitlement mm. of. I mean, I felt that way. I felt like. You know, nobody gets signed and has a hit. Like, it didn't seem possible. So I just figured I, I had also serious imposter syndrome. So ah. my assumption was they'd figured out they'd made a mistake and, and they'd let <laughs> oh. us go soon, uh, which was fine. You know, we got to do some touring. It was great. But uh, I didn't have that. I still don't have... Um, the ego that usually goes with wanting to do this or being, being that, you know, having, I believe I'm a good writer. Um, but I, I, I kind of, my mind tends to go to how it will fail. I would be a really good, like, you know, <laughs> town watchman, uh, I, you know, always looking for, for what's going to go wrong or I'd make a good actuary or something, but 
Um, as far as like ego lead singer, it's not the same thing. Uh, so huh. yeah, I, I, uh, in any event, just, we started touring and when we got signed, even we got signed like through no fault of our own. We, uh, had made a rec our first record bread and circus for like 600 bucks in a track home and like 48 hours to record and mix just knocked it out live we thought that was oh, fun man. so we were doing another one and uh marvin etzioni was producing it and his manager worked at ascap and he had a copy of the first album he gave it to this guy nick terzo uh who i'm still friends with nick started dubbing off cassette copies and sending them to A&R people. And we'd never met the guy or talked to him. And No way. Yeah. And then Vicki Hamilton at, at uh, Geffen liked it. And she started talking it up. And the next thing we knew, we had eight majors like bidding <laughs> on us. And literally, we had never sent out a demo. And, and so... At that time, Columbia Records was like Donnie Hunter was new there, and he was trying to show that they were that they understood alternative and college music, and that they could do artist development. So he um, signed us on, and they were the only record company that said um, we could have complete creative freedom. And so, I mean, we hmm. went with them. They licensed the first record for I think it was. $50,000 in the second record for 75. I mean, which, you know, it's a lot of money now for a record deal. It's yeah. Boys more than ever. I have. Yeah. Uh, but in the day, like, you know, MCA like offered us, I think a million. And so we Ooh. were, we took, we were like, we wanted a high percentage, but we were like, we're going to earn what we make. We don't want to, Oh, we want to, you know, we did a publishing deal that right. was more lucrative than that, but it was, not more lucrative than the MCI deal, more lucrative than the Sony deal. <laughs> but, right. uh, but we, we wanted to work for what we earned and we didn't, you know, we had this like, so for, for Columbia, it was like, cool. <laughs> we were cheap. We didn't cost them anything. They made their money back pretty instant. You know, it's like, and we worked really hard. We toured really hard. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we didn't do like the big deal and every other company was like, well, yeah, we want to sign you, but we want you to, you know, choose the best songs from those two albums, do a real studio. And instead we got to go on the road for like three years and learn how to be a band. I uh, wonder if because you made the decisions you made striking that deal and being not being greedy with the advances, if they were like, you know what, these guys... You know, they didn't go for the big money, and we want we actually want to invest in what they're doing. I wonder if on their end there there was a some sort of a psychological and or uh, actual belief in 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 what you were doing. God forbid to to encourage them to hang on because I know a lot of friends, yeah. especially in the early '90s, who was like would take the big money and if the first single didn't hit, they'd be like, "Sayonara, you're dropped. We don't see a future in you." So. Well, we your got, situation seems to be quite rare. Well, and between Tom Gibson, our product manager, and um, partially the fact that we were just cheap. We were so cheap. You know, we didn't take any <laughs> cost of living expenses. We did. Wow. We, we got off tour support. We toured in vans. We toured, you know, shared rooms in motel. We, we went as cheap as we could for as long as we could. 
So we wow. weren't costing them any money in tour support. Uh, we only, our, our advances only covered our recording costs. We took nothing personal from the company. Um, no kidding. And actually the only time we got in trouble with the company was when we did our last record, we realized because still after all that, you know, we didn't see a single check until we'd sold a million and a half records. And so, uh, there's a lesson right there, everybody. <laughs> that's why you take the event. But when we took a bigger advance on our last record on Coil, um, then we didn't have the freedom anymore. That we we had to have the single. We had to work with the producer. That mm. that Donnie, you know, we you can't play that game halfway. But we had a really good ride. But I mean, it was crazy. We just got to do everything we wanted to and it actually worked <laughs> so a part of it is we treated it like it was an indie record an indie label and yeah the thing about it was it was an indie label with the most incredible promotion uh, setup of any label in the world like every town we went to we would get up in the morning and there would be a radio guy and there would be a promo guy, and there would probably also be a college rep. And so wow. we would go do at least two radio stations a day. We would do an in-store. We would probably, you know, because of politics, you couldn't do two in-stores, but we would shake hands yeah. in another record store. You know, retail and radio meant something, and it was right during a period of deregulation where the formats were really open. So we were getting played right. on, like, multiple formats, and... They worked us ragged. They worked us so ragged, but like we would never have broken unless they'd done that and unless we'd been willing to do it. Um, so we were really lucky. So the yeah. big machine worked for you. Absolutely worked. It really, that is incredible because sometimes yeah. I hear the, you know, I hear the opposite, but I'm so glad that that worked for you and what Oh, yeah, and the reps were awesome was, people. <laughs> I mean, but once well, again, they, they, they worked are, for yeah. it. Yeah, the local right. reps, I mean, it was the, their whole regional Sony system was unparalleled, you know? And, and I hear people, like, I'm, I'm friends with people who are, like, you know, in that, like, uh, my friend Hale Milgram, it, it, you know, it's, he was, like, president of Capital for a while, and he, but he talks mm -hmm. about Camelot. Like the old Mo Austin days, like or oh, you yes. know when when Warner when it was like let's 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 be a successful record company not by pandering, but by teaching people how to love great music, right? Right. This yeah. golden age, and um, I mean, and I think it's why the people who did the best in in the label system were also people like Prince. Or, or Tom Petty or Springsteen mm -hmm. who just were freight trains who you could not you could not tell them what to do they would not play your game and they and dropping them wasn't going to stop them right <laughs> like right. you the only thing you can do with a force of nature like that is either get out of the way or jump on board because you're going to lose if you go against it and we were not that. So the fact that we had oh. this really embracing 
uh, environment uh, was really lucky. I mean, we would have been dropped in a year, any, any other situation. So you, you had a, an incredible uh, uh, success with that record, and, and congratulations, by the way. What a, what a fun ride that must have been. Was it uh, fun for you? Did you guys have a good time doing that? It was it was fun. Once again, I was I was plagued with imposter syndrome. I will you explain that a little bit, please? Just because I think that's something that could be a teachable moment for the people who are up and coming and, and, and people who yeah. don't understand the music business. It happens a lot with success in general, and I think a lot, um, especially with people who are successful quickly, or if you don't have like kind of that incredible ego that the and ego positive negative whatever but like mm-hmm. that solid footing right <laughs> like that that yes. center of balance um imposter syndrome is basically this thing of like going you think i'm someone else i'm not supposed to be here <laughs> like what are you all cheering right. these songs aren't that good i'm not that great a singer like <laughs> what what the fuck are you like? What? Yeah. You you got it wrong, and it was this kind of constant panic that people were going to mm. figure it out, <laughs> and and you see some people where you can tell even if they still continue to do well, where I think you see shades of their panic underneath their their public persona, right? Um, right. But. You know, there's surgeons who have imposter syndrome. It's not not an uncommon thing, um, and and part of that even goes. You know, the Dunning Kruger effect. Have you heard of that? I have not. Dunning Kruger effect, and I feel sorry for doctors Dunning and Doctor and Kruger because uh, their legacy is this research that talked about uh, confidence and then uh, confidence versus performance. And found that those who perform the best tend not to think they nailed it. Those who perform really well are paying attention to nuances and they are self-critical and they're questioning. And so the, this mm-hmm. research was based on doing these tests and then having people rate their performance. And the people who most often went, nailed it, were a little more Trumpish about it. They're just like, oh, I did perfectly. I am amazing. Right. Of course I nailed it. <laughs> if you think I did wrong, it's because you're grading it funny. You know, it's like, it's the people who think they do the best are, are actually not paying attention. And, um, Got it. And so that there is at, there is a certain part of the curve where there's some people who are like, I didn't know the answers to any of that. Like, sorry, like, it, you know, it's not an absolute correlation, but there is a definite curve of, uh, you know, performance versus like uh, versus self-confidence. And so a lot of people who do well, once again, and I think even being a songwriter, it depends on what kind of song you write. Most of my songs are about questioning yourself and being uncertain mm. and feeling mm. small and vulnerable and emotional in, a, in an uncontrollable world, right? And right. So, uh, wow. so that's actually who I am. And uh, yeah, I, I, I always felt like 
when we were successful, I, I, I was sure it was going to come crashing down at any moment. Uh, and it eventually did. But <laughs> was it was it de- was it debilitating for you? Somewhat, yeah. Uh, I was really hard, okay. uh, and uh, I, I and I talk pretty openly about uh, depression and anxiety. It's like I've I've fought it yeah, my entire I've life. Seen that. Um, yeah. I'm wired that way, um, and mm-hmm. and also I think what that comes with is partly what makes me a good artist. And my art, once again, doesn't speak to Absolutely. everybody. Absolutely. But no, let, me, let me interrupt you and say I totally agree with that statement. I, I have many incredible songwriting friends who, who are a lot like what uh, have the feelings and emotions and uh, vulnerability that you are saying that you have that are my most brilliant songwriting friends. They feel everything. And they're able to write about that, and that's that's part of their therapy. And uh, yeah, I, it, I commend you for being so open about that. I think you've helped a lot of people out, man. And that's, I mean, as far as purpose goes, that's part of it. Like my job is, I crack myself open to help other people crack themselves open. And so for me, the thing is, when I go into the dark, um, I learn a lot. And the healthier I am, the more solid I am. The more I can go into the dark and understand that it's part of my cycle and what I do, and I don't feel cursed there, and I don't lose my identity there, um, but I get I get the jewels out of it, right? Mm. And so, right, you take it take it for what it is, and you're able to separate it. It sounds like, yeah. There's uh, a song I sing, and I lead a community choir, and one of the songs we sing is by this woman, uh, Barbara McAfee, from actually the Twin Cities, and. Uh, it's, you know, this, uh-huh. the lyric is every time I go into the darkness, I return with fistfuls of jewels. And it's like that idea that happiness, you know, it's a more Buddhist attitude towards happiness, that happiness isn't about getting the result of a life where you get everything you want. Happiness is about an ability to find strength and resource, even when things, it's not a situationally dependent state. It's not outcome it. based because we love things like and we that. don't, yeah, we don't want, um, we don't want the things we love to change or die or go away. Amen to that. Right? That's scary. That's fear yeah. stuff. Well, and that's the thing, but they do. They change, they go away, they die. And if they don't yeah. die, we die. Right? So True. Um, True. And keeping that in mind, uh, and once again, for some reason, I've just never been able to not think about these things. And so yeah. for me, it's a matter of going, okay, you know, love, love plus time equals loss and grief. And you don't grieve things that you don't truly love. So grief is ultimately a blessing. Grief, yeah. grief is like the greatest blessing you have because it means you were able to love something deeply, even though you knew it would move away from you. And mm-hmm. like, it takes a real bravery and a real strength to love uh, wholeheartedly in the face of, of inevitable change. And so, I mean, keeping that in mind, it's like every tear is a gift, right? And it doesn't right. mean it's a pity party. It doesn't mean <laughs> that you're like worshiping depression or sorrow or pain. It means you're giving it mm. its due respect. And it means you're understanding sure that the price of your ecstasy, the price of your joy are those tears and that you can hold them in a way 
that you don't collapse under, you know, that doesn't destroy you. And so like, that's, that's the stuff that really moves me. And that's uh, more and more as I get older, I realize like I've been doing work that is increasingly like less like pop music and Mm -hmm. less like, you know, it's become a very personal thing. And, And so it's interesting. Like it, I think all songs serve people. And, and frankly, something I learned through doing the choir leading as a person who specializes in, in uh, sad or kind of wrenching music, uh, that mm. singing joyful songs can bring you to joy just as easily. <laughs> like, right? I suddenly right. learned that, oh my God, writing a song about joy takes me there it's like so much quicker than writing a song about mutual sadness sadness <laughs> but hey, there, there's there's room about, for them both <laughs> talk, talk to me a little bit about what no that's that's fascinating to me because you've taken a focus now and a new purpose it seems like in leading sing-alongs with choirs um People would, might look at that and go, well, now that's an interesting choice. Why do you do that? It's some weird hippie stuff. We're going to break away from the interview right now because I want to tell you about a couple of really cool things. First of all, thank you to everybody who's embraced Funk Friday. We are having so much fun bringing a little joy to the internet every single Friday with a one-minute funk jam. So thank you so much for that. And if you like Funk Friday and you like music on the run and you want to become our partner and help us put those shows on, go to patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast. Again, become our partner at patreon.com forward slash music on the run podcast. And there you'll get all the information on how you can financially help us produce this podcast and get some pretty cool merchandise and incentives in return. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank the patrons who've already signed up. We could not do this show without you. As always, thank you so much for supporting us here at Music on the Run. Now back to our interview. Why do you do that? It's some weird hippie stuff. Um, mostly because I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good answer. Yeah, uh, because I love it. I, and, but I mean, the reason I love it is because it is... Um, I'm trying to think how to describe this. Like, I'd been talking to friends for about 15 years about finding non-performative modes of music, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I love mastery and i love uh the exquisite things that a very tuned musician is capable of achieving right and you know when you talk about mastery as well it's like there you can see it even on stage there are people you get to a point where you can play well enough feel well enough sing well enough be intuitive and facile enough that surprising things can move through you and uh, musicians who aren't just bound by their ego, they know they live in service of that. Like you, you, 
you become masterful in order to disappear and become a conduit for something, right? Ooh, and wait a minute. Say that again. Whoa, that's, become, that's everything right there. Yeah. Like that's, you don't do this so that you can have the audience look at you and go, oh my God, that was incredible. Like that's a really small goal. That's mm. dancing monkey stuff. Like you do that <laughs> so that you can disappear at a really high level and that what you do is so transcendent that the audience is carried into that same egoless state that you are, right? And that's, that's what the masters do. It's, they don't exist except as a conduit when they're operating at that flow state. And the good thing is if you're able to do that state, you're probably also able on a bad night to be confident enough that everybody has a great time. I've been thinking for about 15 years, like kind of about the history of music and that performative professionalized music. I mean, it's been around in some form or another for a while, but mm. for most of human history, everybody sang and everybody sang pretty much whenever. <laughs> people right. sang uh, when they worked, people sang when they ate, people sang, uh, when their crotches got hairy for the first time, you know, rites of passage, <laughs> people saying at the fire at night, people saying to the plants and animals around them and to the sun and to the night sure. and the directions. And, and it wasn't something that only the shaman did. It wasn't something that only the best voice in the village did. And the songs were owned by everybody. Um, and they changed, right? They were, they were communal property. And, there's something in that experience. And I, I got off on a tangent when I was talking about mastery, but there is a mastery thing for anybody to be able to sing and lose themselves. And I just kept thinking of like, how could, I love performing, but I, I feel like not only musicians should have that experience. And so I was asking these questions and then I kind of mm -hmm. through a couple of friends, through a friend, uh, Lisa Littlebird is her name. She's a song leader up in like the Carmel area. And she, I, I found this whole community, Barbara McAfee's in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, uh, uh, this guy, Lawrence Cole, he's like 83 years old up in Port Townsend, uh, Washington, this network of people who are leading these choirs. And the one I do is just, it's a drop in thing in a living room and it's, there's no audition. There is no, in my case, no performance. And the songs are designed even so that non-musicians can learn and sing them quickly. They're mostly like three-part uh, intertwining, like contrapuntal melodies. It's easier for non-singers mm -hmm. to hold a counter melody than a harmony. Harmony like really messes right. people up. So, yep. so the songs tend to be very short form and repetitive and layered. Um, I would say they're a little bit like kirtan tradition, which is like more of a yogic singing tradition, Those in, in that they're short and repetitive. But right. they, but that turns into a kind of breath work, right? You start singing together and you start breathing together. And, and, and I think for non-singers, I, I mean, I've had musician friends come in and they get really bored by this kind of music. Uh, right. Um, but for non-musicians and some musicians as well, it's like, it's not about how great it sounds or it's about excellence about singing a really simple song for maybe five, 10 minutes and going really deep in the repetition of it. Um, you know, even Philip, you know, 
like Philip Glass, right? Talks over Stephen Reich talk about, you know, repetition, like Philip Glass, you know, these tiny segments, but what happens if you repeat it a hundred times? Like it takes you somewhere differently. There's different patterns and changes that you notice and that emerge. And so, um, so they're very simple songs, but uh, they allow non-musicians to hit those same states where like you can see the rapture on people's faces and especially getting people who've been shamed their entire life. For me, it's been a really profound experience and, I, and it's not for everybody, but for some people, they're like, I've been looking for this for 20 years and I haven't known what it is. And it's a lot of yeah. older people. It's, you know, it's a lot of people who are in the 50s or older and they're not needing to be cool anymore. And at this point, they're over their shame and they just want to feel good. Right. Like, because I remember when I was a kid, when I had the house to myself, I would clear all the books off of the coffee table. It was a good, strong wooden coffee table. And right. that was my dance platform. And I would turn on <laughs> like Studio 54 or Soul Train and mm -hmm. I would dance my ass off and like I remember when I saw disco it's like they were free in a way that I could only dream of being like the way I saw it like they were fabulous and feathered and colorful and yep. they were so free and like I wanted to be that free all the time and at an early age I got shamed out of dancing I had a couple people shut me down permanently I'm, until, I'm with you on that one and you were with Prince? <laughs> I guess you, you got to hide. Well, I was, the, I was the longest, lankiest, not grown into my body, white dude you've ever met in your life from the <laughs> suburbs. And I got thrust into something completely different. That's so amazing. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. I mean, we got story. Well, we'll now we're friends. We'll talk offline about that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. But, but, to but me, for to me, me, like this is this getting back to as an adult. I've, you know, reclaimed dance for myself. I don't have to be sexy. I don't have to be young. My body loves moving. And I, you know, and I, it's just this ability to say like, fuck it, I want to dance. And these other people who go like, I want to sing. I don't care if it sounds yeah. bad. Like you're, you're giving gonna, them freedom. You're giving them their childlike uh, attitude back. It sounds yeah. like you're creating a whole community based on freedom. What a beautiful thing and what a healing thing that must be for you too. It's been really, it's been a good balance. And like for me doing things like that and, you know, doing my weird solo projects and making music that most people that, you know, that's never going to get played on the radio or placed anywhere. Like it makes me feel okay about going with Toad and playing a bunch of hits for people and making people happy. And I hope I take yeah. them somewhere transcendent, but, um, mm my best musical experiences and even before I found all kind of, you know, things like, you know, the community singing, it's like when I met Nickel Creek and started playing with them, you know, we right. would play yeah. a show. Please talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I was like kind of feeling bitter and over when the band broke up and I met them and they were the most open-minded life eating like in the best like like they just wanted to know and think about and experience everything and they loved playing music more than anything and my and game, they loved your music they loved your writing 
Yeah. And I mean, I had to improve as a musician and they were so gentle with me as a musician and as a human being. Um, I worked so hard just to keep up and not mess it up with them. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and they were so generous and gleeful and even being on tour. So unjaded. It's like, you know, every town it's like, Hey, we got to find a, let's find a local coffee shop. Like just, right. There's a museum like two blocks from here. There's, you know, mm-hmm. they were so in love with life and right. I, I, they really saved my life. Like, I, I, I don't think that's overstating. Well, absolutely. And now let me ask you something. I'm going to switch gears on yeah. you just a little bit. I do want to talk about you being uh, uh, on the road. You've been on the road, you know, all of your life because this, this is called music on the run. And we do not only, uh, talk about music obviously but we also talk about how do we survive on the road you're away from your family i know you have children and i also read that you uh are a runner is that still the case uh right now i have a foot injury uh so ah. uh, right now i'm i'm letting it heal which is a real pain in the ass uh but i practice oh, man, yoga always tough practice yoga I run for me tour I mean tour on a bus is really easy like we are at that place where we don't have money to spend on hotel rooms so uh, we get like two one or two rooms a week we mostly sleep on the bus show up at the next town get a shower room or whatever so when I'm on the road with Toad and we're lucky enough to have a crew which a lot of people don't have so uh, right I wake up, I read, I go for a run first thing in the morning. We usually tour in the summer. So I go on a run first thing in the morning and I wake up as early as I can get away with. Go on the road, right. like run before it gets too hot. Um, and I'm like three to five. I found that if I go far beyond five miles, I don't remember lyrics. Uh, like... I have to kind of, I can't run too far. I was getting really into going like eight, 12 miles. And then I would start forgetting mm. words at the show. <laughs> so, I can relate with that. Uh, so I don't push it like super hard. I run most days. I also like to do yoga. Um, but I read, Got I take it. care of myself. Like I use the day to kind of, be really healthy. And then on the best Mm. tours, you know, I, I'm not an excessive drinker, but I get depressed if I drink regularly. Uh, and it it wears out my voice and, and makes me less happy. So, uh, I'm not a happy enough person to drink regularly. So, uh, (laughs) well, at least you recognize that. Yeah. I had a friend who described it as like every drug takes something from somewhere else. Uh, you know, it's like coffee takes your afternoon, next afternoon's energy. Alcohol takes tomorrow's happiness. And if you've got a lot of happiness, you can top it off once in a while. Yeah. But, if, but if you don't have a ton of spare, it wears down after a few days. And then, then you're at bottom. So, Ooh. yeah. So, uh, for me, it's, it's like keeping it clean, right? Keeping hydrated, running yep. just taking good care of myself because it's all about the show uh and i need to be 
happy and healthy and vital and have energy uh, or the show's going to suck. <laughs> and so, yep. Yep. and I, I want to be, I want to be uplifting too. I did years, like when the band broke up and I first started going solo, honestly, I should have just checked myself in somewhere. I went on the road for years, resentful and depressed and like, kind of suicidal and mm. uh, and I, I remember getting letters from people saying, you clearly don't want to be here. Don't waste my time and money. And, Ooh. Uh, Ooh. and I lost a lot of audience and a lot of opportunity. Um, and, you know, I had three young kids at the time. I was freaking out. And so I felt right. trapped and I went on the road. But honestly, I, I should have like literally checked myself in somewhere and and got my head straight uh and so it it, it can get really dark if you're dark and the problem is your audience knows it <laughs> and so like mental health and care there were years where it was hard with the band and i would go into intensive therapy before tour because i would get so anxious and and wound up and i would go for the sake of myself and for the sake of the audience. Cause if I'm unhappy up there, the show is not going to be good. And, um, right. and it's a really good reason to be healthy. Right. Um, what a great reason. It's like, if I'm, if I'm doing okay, I can lift a lot of other people's spirits. Yeah. Uh, and if I'm not, you know, there is the thing where sometimes you're, you're having like a really hard time. You get some bad news and then the audience is like, wow, man, you were really feeling it tonight. Like, yeah. but then again, I've had nights where I was just like having digestive trouble and, <laughs> and they, they say the same thing. Like, God, you were so, oh, it was incredible. It's like, well, it's not what you thought it was, but I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, so... It was that last burrito, that veggie burrito. Really? The Indian food. I don't do Indian food or Thai food before a show. I love Indian food. Um, so the oh, other thing classic. for me is like on, on solo touring, I'm often by myself or I'm with one other person sharing a hotel room because my touring is small. So I am in yep. a compact car driving usually four to six hours a day, you know, sometimes yep. two if I'm on the East Coast and I'm lucky. Uh, yeah. And in those days, it's just about getting it done, right? You got to wake up early. You got to get a run in first thing, or you're not going to get a run in, uh, mm -hmm. get on the road. Like when I go home, I'm really unstructured, but solo touring, there's no choice because nothing is optional. Yeah. So it's like, right. wake up, run, drive, load in, get a little something to eat again on the way. Maybe you get to the hotel before the show if you're lucky, but probably not. Eat, but not too close to the show. And then in my case, once again, you play the show, you set up the merch, you settle out the show, you pack up, you, you know, sign stuff and shake hands. Like with the band now, we have a VIP. So I meet people before I don't have to smart. thrash my smart, voice. Smart. The VIP yeah. has been great. Uh, yeah. I'm also more tense when I'm with the band and the songs are in a higher register. So I, I really have to look after my throat more. Um, solo 
it's less people and it's less time. So I tr- still try to do the after show thing. But right. uh, it, as time goes on, it's just more. And frankly, when I got divorced, like when, when Toad went on tour, I started having panic attacks after the show. And we were the band oh. that would stay. We would stay for two hours, three hours some night. I mean, we would be there at least an hour after every show, shaking every hand, being there for the very last person. And, and that was right. like, that was the other way we built the band. We always hung out after the show. And anyone who showed up was welcome. And so, um, so now I have to protect myself in some ways psychically and in some ways just time-wise and, and throat-wise. I just noticed mm-hmm. if I did the after show, my throat was sc- screwed up. So, um, I mean, mostly on tour, it's like it's making sure you get the run in. Making oh, yeah. sure you do something that is outside and strengthening your body, right? And it, uh, yep. like, I took a psych class last fall. It's it interesting, like negative stress. And I think the term is eustress, E-U-stress. Uh, and eustress hmm. is positive stress. It's like when you make a muscle stronger, right? Like when you practice yeah. at your edge, that's eustress. Right. That's like pushing forward through something stressful that makes you actually improved and happier. And so um, making sure as much as possible you do your run or at least you take a walk. You know, if, if the meal is provided at the venue, then I will eat at the venue. Otherwise, I always go for a walk. And actually, if it's a crap meal, I eat somewhere else. Because I'd rather have something, <laughs> rather have something good than something free. But I always with right. Toad or with, I don't get like ordering in and staying in the venue all day. I always walk. Like, mm. you know, you get to see a town. You get to see. You get to have something new to talk about. You get to people watch. You get to check stuff. The other reason I run is like. You know, you go to San Antonio and the band's like, man, there's nothing to do here. It's nothing. I'm like, are you kidding? You run yeah, on the Go river, on the boardwalk. Yeah. Run on the, the boardwalk. boardwalk. Yeah, exactly. It's awesome. It goes on forever. It's like, right. what do you mean there's nothing? Like, and the good thing is most, <laughs> most venues are close to a river. They're like close to downtown. Therefore, yeah. because most towns are on a river, they're close to water. And I just, most days I find my river and I run it. And so... Solo, it's harder just because the margins are tighter, and yep. um, and I have to watch my voice. If I'm with my opening act, I'm usually got like somebody with me in the car, and I got to watch my voice because I like to talk. And if I talk for four hours in the car, I can't sing as well. Yeah, so, you're in trouble then. Yep. So yep. lots of podcasts, lots of podcasts, and books on tape, and but it's more. It's go. just like. Get everything done, put your health at a premium and put experience outside of the club at a premium, you know, be able to just enjoy walking around neighborhoods, people watch, check out, you know, sit down at a local coffee shop, check out a museum if you have time, like say yes to the experience of being out there because it's, you're really lucky and rich. I mean, Toad played in Tokyo back when we were young, so I'll forgive him, but like, we never got to go back to Japan. We did like one showcase. And I remember like the, the company took us out for like a soba dinner and a sushi dinner, I think. Mm-hmm. And 
the band, two of the guys, there was a steak place at the hotel. The rest of the, and they had, they did eat there. They ate every meal at McDonald's. In of course they did. That's what you did when you were kids in, in Japan. Though. Yeah. That was the thing. I can't and, eat any of this food. Oh my God. I just like, but I went to, to I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm weird. I'm like, I heard natto is something that people don't like. I want to try natto. Like, I want to try that. <laughs> like Adventurous. Like, give me, give me the, I want to, yeah, I want to experience something different. And, and like, it's such a gift to, to ever get to try out anything different. Like, you know, that's the thing. Eat life. Like, in all ways. It's true. Yeah. You know, don't, don't, uh, yeah. So, Man, that's good. That's good work for, for the road. That's that's an interesting perspective, and, and I love the way you boiled it down for the different touring when you're with Toad and when you're by yourself. I mean, you're yeah, you're you're the guy on everything on a solo tour. I would say, like the other thing that having the band teaches me, I mean, and having another person, my God, it's such a gift. It's amazing to have one other person on the road. Uh, Having with Toad a crew, having people to help. Like, I thank yeah. my guitar tech every time he hands me a guitar. It's like, because I don't have a guitar tech most of the time. I, it's, right? I, I understand. And, and, and once again, depression is in large part about ingratitude. It's about not being unwilling to be grateful, but having ungrateful, repetitive loops in my mind. Right. And so yeah. gratitude for me has to be a very active practice. I have to make myself do it and repeat it. It's a practice and being on the road and having done both. Um, I know I'm not entitled to any of the comfort I get on the road with Toad. I'm not entitled to any of it. And I know how to do it all by myself. And I've had years with no record company, no manager, uh, doing my own website, like do, like literally doing everything except tour managing. <laughs> yep. And I do it, most of it really badly, but I, I have done enough of it to be really grateful for anyone who can do it well and even to have anyone else ever want to do it or help with it. Like if you have help, you're lucky. And most musicians, I know musicians who are way better than I am that carry all the weight on their own shoulders. So like, and the fact that you have the gratitude to simply play in front of an audience who wants to hear what you're doing <laughs> and, you know, just that, you know, baseline, even if you're doing it all yourself, like I've been there too. I've played, yeah. you, you know, I've played the rooms where nobody gave a damn. Uh, and, you know, it's strange sometimes as a, as an artist now, I get hired for events where they want to have the guy from Toad. And nobody listens. <laughs> Everybody talks the entire time. And it's like... But you make a hey, million dollars on those. Those are the they, highest paying gigs. For some reason, they pay the most, but nobody cares. And I know. Going like, you know, I'm still really lucky. At least I get paid for no one to listen. But like... <laughs> to ever have the gig where people listen and care, is it's all a gift. And so that's the other thing. It's just like, sounds dumb. But I say, I talk about practicing gratitude because once again, I've collapsed 
a number of times. I've, I've, I've lost my shit and I've lost yep. a lot of opportunity because of it. And it's actually one of the most important things you can do is to be grateful and mm. to remain grateful and to understand that you're going to see the same people year after year and your kindness to them is like the best commodity you have because they're going to yeah. see you up. They're going to see you down. If you treat people well, no matter where you are, and even to a degree, no matter how you're feeling, tell them you're feeling bad. You're going to have hard days. Taking it out on people is never allowed. Like, right. you know, have your bad day, but uh, don't make it another person's problem. <laughs> uh, you know, and, you know, don't even make it your audience's problem. It's like, you can be even you can be honest about it if that's the type of show you do luckily for me that's the kind of show i do but i can also be funny about it and i can be revealing and open about it um instead of like i was 20 years ago i was just a bummer about it <laughs> <laughs> live and learn right yeah yeah you know, I want to uh, I want to commend you on some of the during the research that I've done on you. I've I've watched several of your Facebook lives and what you're doing for the community. I've seen you raise money for many different things, and I, I just uh, I I think that is such a cool way to give back and to set an example not only for your fans but for other artists to go. I have a platform and I have an opportunity to share, um, you know, whatever you have to, to be able to raise money for such important costs, uh, uh, causes, not cost, causes. Yeah. And I just wanted to commend you on that because I think that is uh, really incredible. And you don't have to do that. And you choose to do that. Yeah, it just, it felt natural. Can I ask what time it is? Only because I have to bounce like by one thirty, and I know I'm it's talking a lot. It's 11.20 and we are going to wrap it up in the next 30 seconds. Okay, great. Um, so that would be one twenty your time here. Okay, perfect. I started doing these things. I mean, I don't think anybody thought this was going to last. I, I thought it might last a while. I didn't think it was going to last this long. You know, but it was quarantine and I was at home and I saw that Facebook, I'd never done Facebook Live. So I pressed that button and then I'm like, oh, you can, there's a <laughs> donate button. You can make it. I mean, so there's a lot of things I won't thank Facebook for, but yeah, they make it very easy to do a fundraiser. And, um, and so I just figured I was going to be home for a few weeks. So I mean, I started doing, I started by doing five a week. And then after a few oh, weeks man. of that, it was like a little like, okay, I'll do three a week. And then somebody wrote me and asked if they could send me a tip. And I'm like, oh, I should probably put something up there for that too, like a PayPal. Yeah. And it just felt like, what else are you going to do? Like there's an audience, there's, there's time. And we're all feeling like out of sorts. And I mean, the beauty of, I think the thing that happened with the live streams was because I've done them and I'm about to take a week or two off. I need, I'm doing a little traveling and I actually need, need some time to get my head back in, in line. Yep. Um, but I've, 
pretty much done those three a week and the stage it. And I've been doing my choir thing on Tuesday nights on zoom. Um, just about every week since this started. And, uh, I think the regularity has been really important for people who are cut off from their other communities. And it's been a beautiful thing to see the way, like everybody know they know each other. They know what they're going through. They know whose parents have passed away and who's had COVID and who's had surgery and who's having a hard time. And your community, there's couples that have come out of it. (laughs) Um, like a few people met in the chat and fell in love and they're like living together now. Like it's, it's been a really beautiful thing to see something kind of authentic come out of this strange thing. And it's mostly, I feel like I'm the, you know, it's the medium by which this community, like people want to build communities and if you give them a chance to, they will. And yeah. uh, So these people have been able to build this and feel and do good. And even if, you know, sometimes they can't give anything. Sometimes we, we raise a lot. There was one of the guys, one of the people uh, coming to the things had a brain tumor and I, you know, we got to raise a bunch of money for him and like, Wow. You know, it's less than it was at the beginning because it's been going on so long. But sure. um, it's, and I like that it's been kind of homespun and not, um, you know, there's been no promo. It's like I make the graphics, I, I set up the shows. You know, it's like <laughs> we, it's it's not. There's no like third party promo for any of it, so. I mean, Lady Gaga could raise 10 times as much as I've raised, you know, in 10 minutes today. But uh, for what, considering the size of the audience and, you know, the scope, uh, I think we've done pretty well. And, and yeah. uh, we've, we've made something really beautiful. And, and uh, it's felt really good. And for me, I think it's also felt like this opportunity to, to try to create a smaller, like, non I mean, once again, I'm going to sound like a hippie, but like a non-transactional economy um, where I get to give something that's generous and free and Mm -hmm. use it as a device for more generosity for people. And in the process, those people have actually supported me this year. Um, Right. And without a price tag or a ticket or a tip jar, you know, just like if you want to send me a tip, you can. And people have really valued it. And it's been great to see, I don't know. It's just really been great to see how deeply valued it is for people. Uh, when you don't put a price tag on, uh, and when they, they see that I'm giving and that I'm showing up and they're doing the same for each other and for the causes and for me. And it's like, uh, it proves to me something that honestly also, in this era, I felt I really needed proof of, which was that people are generous and non-transactional and that that's actually something that gives us the most joy and, and purpose. And, and uh, so for me, it's like a social experiment and I feel like it's been really positive <laughs> and uh, it, it got the result that I would have hoped it would have. So, Glenn, I, I cannot thank you enough for spending... Yeah so much time with us uh you are such a fascinating uh individual uh, and, and of course a, an incredible musician 
the fact that uh, you are sharing your journey um, with your struggles and how you've dealt with them. And, and I think it's helped your fan base and will help others in the business uh, relate to those things. I think there's so many of us out there that still think that uh, mental health is taboo to talk about, which is silly, of course, uh, but, uh, but it, 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 that's, that's a factor. But I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of all of us fellow musicians, and uh, uh, we just want to say we, we thank you, and the work you're doing is great, and we can't wait to uh, hear what you got coming out next. And everybody out there, where can we find your, your weekly uh, concerts? Uh, just on Facebook or YouTube. I post them up as they come. Uh, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, 6 p.m. Usually, I may move that because my evenings, my girlfriend's a teacher, so it takes up all my evenings. Uh, so it's 6 Got p.m. It. Pacific on uh, Mondays and Fridays, and it is... Uh, noon uh, for the international crowd on Wednesdays and then Sunday nights on stage it and then Tuesday nights for, yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're you're a busy man thank you again so much for joining us you guys thank you Glenn Phillips everybody episode 33 that's in the books we will see you in a couple of weeks music on the run was hosted by yours truly St. Paul Peterson edited and produced by my buddy Davide Razo Video editing by Ivan Sebastianov. And a very special thanks to the people who financially support this podcast. And remember, vacations are good for the soul. Yeah.